This is a Momentum Media production. Investing insights with Right Property Group. Exploring trends in real estate and helping property investors gain financial security. G'day, how going? Phil Tarrant, co-host of Investing Insights at Right Property Group, joined by Steve Waters, Victor Kumar, directors, Right Property Group. These guys have been at it for near in two decades, I reckon. When's the 20th anniversary for you two guys? That's a pretty we good question. We don't want to let that out. We don't want to let that out because it'll give away our age. <laughs> Started, well, yeah. so, well, it's supposed to be a compliment that uh, you've seen <laughs> so many market cycles that people should be turning to you rather than people who have only seen one market cycle for, uh, for helping. <laughs> one what? Sorry, what was that? One market one cycle. One market cycle. <laughs> I'm, a one, I'm a one market cycle wonder uh, uh, person. No, you're actually not. No, you're not. This is your... Oh, this would be your third cycle. You reckon? Yeah. It's gone up, then down, then up again. I'm like the grand old Duke of York, right? There's a song in that. Or Maybe. It, um, no, well, you, when did you start? You started, I oh, was 11. 2011. So, yeah, in and around the, the JFC, then, mm. yeah, you saw that sideways and contract, then you saw it up, then you saw APRA, then you saw yeah. it, you know, down and sideways, and, and now you've got, you know, the COVID adventure. Mm, maybe it's four cycles, probably four distinct cycles. You go back and wrap mm. it. But, wow. um, and here we are in another cycle. Mm, soon to be another one, apparently. Soon to be another one. It's one thing you're guaranteed with property, though, isn't it? It's cyclical. Well, that's that's why it's called a cycle, right? As is every other asset class. Yeah, up and down. But um, you wouldn't be in anything else. I was uh, lamenting with a mate the other day who have all, and we've all sort of got smashed on the share market recently. And we're just going, why do we even do it? Like we, we do it because we feel like we need to. We do it because we feel like we should be diversifying. We do it because, you know, it's good to do. But uh, you sit there and you scratch your head sometimes and go, why am I playing outside of where I really know? And this is, uh, this is diversification. It's uh, a really interesting thing as a, as a side note uh, that I was listening to, and I can't remember who it was, and but very short sort of maybe not completely accurate version is with uh, say that the US share market over the last, I don't know, three decades, whatever it is. If you're a trader and you missed the best eight days of trading, your percentage return you know, went to negligible if you missed those yeah. best eight moments in I've, time. I've heard those same stats or similar sort of philosophy to it all. And hence the reason why they say, oh, Share trading is a long-term game. If you're in there for 30 years and you don't really go in and out of shares or, or, or particular stocks, well, when you have those great days, you're going to get an uplift, right? But well, it's um, interesting because I mean that's the beauty of property to some degree is that it's not a yeah it's not a tradable commodity in a very short period of time. Well, you don't notice it. You don't feel it. You don't know. You don't know the worst day of your property's life, right? Because it just gets absorbed with time. Uh, you're not mm. looking at a uh, some numbers on a uh, on a internet platform somewhere that tells you today your property's worth X and tomorrow it's worth Y and the day after it's worth Z. You just don't feel it. The only time you really sort of be conscious of it is that you're going through some sort of refinancing process and you want to actually get a mark of of what the value of the property is or you're flogging it or you're buying it. You know, that's when you know. Correct, but the times are changing. You know, if you believe or or think that certain I don't know, platforms are going to change all of that. I mean, you know, now there's virtual real estate with, you know, within the NFTs. 
It, um, you, got, you guys are the first buyer's agent in that world. I sort of looked into it the other night. I was trying to understand it. And there's people buying this virtual real estate for their children as investments. And I'm, for, for some game I've never heard of, right? Let's be clear. They're games. They're, they're computer games. Mm-hmm. Um with NF non-fudgeable tokens, which I only sort of become aware of. But already there's all these people out there on the uh the Marvels that is social media spruiking this stuff, right? It's um, you know, if if you if you like the next big shiny thing, guess what? Uh there's plenty of ways for you to lose your dough today and into the future. There'll be plenty of people that take it up and that already have, especially in the States, and it's it's coming here. Mm. It'll be in Australia. Within no time, in a large sense, not that I agree or disagree with it, because I don't know enough about it to form an opinion mm. uh, yet. But I'll I'll have a look at it just because you can never have can too do. much information. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, therein lies the challenge, and I've been noticing this recently on on my own social feeds. I'm not a big consumer of social media. I normally jump on there and have a little nose around to see what's going on. But um, I you know sort of picked up a, a new hobby, and it's funny how. The feed of information I get coming through my social media is just the algorithm. Like I've noticed the algorithm has changed. And every second post now is something sponsored around this, like um, what do you call them? Like, you know, fire pits and that sort of stuff, right? For home. It just gets peppered with it all. So the algorithm knows when your interests deviate or change, and it's smart enough to start feeding you stuff you want. Goes to show how compromised you are as a consumer of media through social media about being manipulated by algorithms of metaverse or metadata and um it's an alarming and it's a scary thing because if you start going down the wrong rabbit hole and you see it all the time and time again it uh you know exacerbates into some people making pretty poor investment decisions but the other end of that spectrum is people making pretty poor life decisions i.e packing up your bag and head off to syria to fight for isis right this all happens through this manipulation of information that comes into people's mindsets and they don't know they're being controlled and coerced in a particular way. So it's where we one, live. one of the things that we, we've been saying in different podcasts is that, you know, you should not be investing via media, you know, so don't let the media articles dictate uh, where investing. So I'm talking about the news feeds, right? So as you mentioned, Phil, it just starts pushing in the same algorithms into your news feed. So if you're starting to uh, feed off the negative news, let's say rates are rising, any article that's got rates arising will get smashed into your newsfeed. And that's all you see, or majority of what you see, right? So, and then it starts making inroads in your own mental uh, talk. And so that combined with the transfer, the speed of transfer of information and the speed of transfer of assets, that's what's led to the increase in volatility in all asset classes, right? Because the speed of transfer of information is there. And when you look at that, and when you look at the fact that we've got all of these news articles there saying property will come down, property will go up, it becomes then a herd mentality and pushes people down the same path. And therefore, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. We spoke about this, and it might have been, Vic, on this very podcast or years ago now, how mm. technology has changed all markets in all asset classes. Yeah. And you know, even as we just mentioned, you know, the invention of new asset classes, whether it be crypto or NFTs or you know, whatever it may be, and technology and social media platforms and that constant vomiting of information mm. uh, is there. And it, and it gets into, the, into your subconscious and you start to form decisions around that, whether you act on them or not, is another question. But it also is the reason why we see 
the time distance between peaks and troughs or peak to peak of markets becoming shorter and shorter and shorter. Yeah. Yeah, because of that information, because of the narrative and because of the way, and what did you call it? Phil, the manipulation, manipulation of information, of information, yeah, and yeah, and that's it's not all bad uh, because there's an education piece to that as well. But it's yeah, it's a clever algorithm. It's and there's some clever people behind it. And I'm not being a conspiracy theorist in any way, shape, or form. It just is what it is. Why, why are you wearing a spaghetti colander on your head then? Oh, that's just better reception. <laughs> 5G. <laughs> no, you're 6G already, but, but we, we joke about it. But that, that's the extreme end of when the information that people consume gets manipulated in a way it forces them down particular um, avenues. But let's also be clear this is not a new thing. This is social media is just the next tool along a long chain of ways in which uh, information has been manipulated. You only go back to the printing presses when they started coming out. That was the first mass scale way that information was manipulated by people. You could actually have an idea and disseminate it to the masses. And that's what's happening right now. And we're speaking within the context of property or, or investment decisions, but there is so many different examples through time of how people adopted a herd mentality down a particular projection, which has a certain outcome. Um, you need to think about what's going on in Europe in the 20th century, a number of different world wars exacerbated by, by information manipulation. So it can be a good thing and a bad thing. What a great way to spread ideas. What a great way to spread democracy. Democracy was spread through printed press and newspapers, and they're absolutely critical component of the exchange of information. It's just how you interface or interact with it will uh, determine whether or not it's a positive or a negative force for you. And what I'm seeing right now, guys, is more negative than positive because I'm concerned. Uh, And I would say that within the realms of um, uh, we're moving to a federal election this year. Uh, Looks like it's going to happen in May. You would assume by reading the media right now that 90% of people are going to vote for the Labor government should there be election today, you know. That's what you would think, considering of how it's been projected in most forms of the media right now. That wouldn't happen. And I'd put it on the line that 90% of Australia right now wouldn't vote for a Labor government. How it's going to play out in time, who knows? Uh, We also hear as consumers of media that um, interest rates are an absolute given this year because of all the different reasons why it's stipulated inside of uh, the media Rather than if you go back six months ago, we are told that interest rate rises weren't going to happen in 2024. So for me, that's a big question mark. Why has that changed so quickly and rapidly? And is that information accurate or is that information being manipulated for other reasons? You know, there's actual schools of thought around this and technical capabilities around it. We have information warfare for this particular reason to actually change what people think, act and react and behave. So let's put pillar two of those things, interest rates to rise this year, running up to the last RBA announcement, which happens, as you all know, on the first Tuesday of the month. Everyone's going, oh, rates could even go up this time, but they're at least coming up this year. But the RBA governor come out and pretty much said, hey, look, everyone just relax a little bit. We want to actually see real underlying inflation growth and wage growth before we're going to start tinkering. He put a lot of cold water on a lot of this heat around Mm -hmm. interest rate increases. So who do you listen to, mate? Exactly. And, and and also, when you look at the business case for the banks, they have got a case to raise the interest rates on their own, right? Mm. Because they're in there to make profit. And as their funding lines start to waver, particularly with what's happening in the US and all that, 
there's a strong chance that they may move independently of RBA. But like you said, who do we listen to, right? So this is where it comes back to one of the things that you say, Steve, is that uh, you know we should not forget the simplicity of investing and shut out all the white noise. So long as we are true to our own goals and invest within our financial means and look at it from a viewpoint that, okay, interest rates will go up. How high can I afford in terms of negative cash flow and not uh, invest for tax reasons? Because those things can change overnight, yeah. especially with an election coming up, right? Uh, you know, they, they might not use that as a platform. But one of the things that I would be flagging, you know, taking the argument away from the interest rate, there's a lot more at play over here. And the biggest thing here is perhaps a restructure of the taxation system because we spent heaps and heaps keeping the economy afloat uh, with COVID. Uh, and someone's got to pay it back, right? We've got to replenish the coffers. How are we going to do that? Let's put that to a straw poll between the three of us. Will the taxation system change and where would it be? Personally, GST will increase. Yep, absolutely. And I'm, I'm actually not too dissatisfied with that. You know, consumption tax, yeah, why not? But it, it'll happen because someone needs to replenish the coffers collectively. We need to, but, yeah, maybe that's a different podcast. Yeah. What if do you think, can, Phil? Yeah. If we can go back to the archaic days, right, when, when there were emperors and kings, when they had a war or when they had a famine, you know, the palace would spend money like nothing. They'll, they'll release all the gold, the grains and all that. But when that was, when the uh, crisis was over, then they'd go back to the citizens and claw back and uh, impose taxes, impose uh, levies and all that. And, and it's no different in democracy. Uh, it's just that it's, it's a lot more refined and a lot more um, fairer in that sense. And I agree with you, Steve, in terms of there's definite um, um, merits in changing the GST equation because the more you spend, the more you pay. And so it's a more fairer tax in that sense. But the other thing that will rates head up is the old get rid of the stamp duty and bring in land tax. Yeah, that'd be an interesting one. I don't think any political party would be too game to be talking about that before an election. Yeah, mm-hmm. as we've spoke about over the last month or so, but you know, it's not off the table for the future. And yeah, you know, coming back to the, I guess to the the subject somewhat, in terms of the manipulation of information and just how free it is and the accuracy of the information and so on. Here we are giving an opinion, mm-hmm. and if our opinion is the same as you know the collective, well then maybe it's a self fulfilling prophecy. And so too is the market, which is why the market should always be between your ears when you take into account the fundamentals and the simplicity yet with a degree of science overlaying it. But everybody is entitled to an opinion. It's whose opinion do you respect? Does a thesis and five years of university give you more of an accurate opinion than someone who hasn't? And I, and I know that sounds like a bit of a soapbox moment, but we put so much kudos onto a very small few in terms of who are giving their opinion and shaping potential markets across you know, this big land. And mm-hmm. so once again, keeping it simple, looking at it at the long term, as we always say, cutting out that noise, I believe, will give you a much fair assessment of what to do rather than what not to do. I think, Steve, it's a good point. Opinion needs to be considered, but anyone who has an opinion in this market, let's be clear, 
anyone who has an opinion in this market in some way or another will have an agenda around it. And that's the nature of an opinion. Why do you have a position if you don't want to influence someone in a particular way? You just don't have an opinion just for the sake of having an opinion. So you've got some very, and this is the intersectional, maybe the, the dichotomy, Steve, between academic discipline and rigor and, you know, all those letters that people have after their name versus someone who's an operator on the ground doing what they do every single day, you're going to get two very, very different views. And it's not very often that people straddle both. Um, the economists in the major bank, they're all in the major banks, they're all very smart people um, who probably have degrees up the yin-yang and actuarials and stuff like that. They're numbers people and, you know, that's their discipline. But are they actually property investors themselves or are they actually talking to property investors every single day? They're probably talking to bond analysts and all those sort of people. But are they actually getting both sides of the coin? It's a good point. I don't think they are. And but to be fair to them, you know, they're juggling so many sets of data over mm. a worldwide platform and probably trying to juggle political, not agendas, but changes, you know, both from a macro and micro point of view. Mm. And so they need to assume or model and then come up with an assumption on which direction or what is going to happen in terms of their analytics. Now, the problem with that is that we live in such a fickle world over the last three to five years, you know, whether it be you know, different wars over the globe, technology, you know, information, sort of espionage, COVID. You know, this is a different ecosystem or environment over the last, I'll call it, two to five years than what was 10, 15, 20 years ago. Now, some might argue, but there's always been a, you know, some sort of impactful crisis and, you know, we've, we agree with that. But because of technology and, and the speed of information today, people can react a lot quicker, both in the negative and the positive, and that will shape markets. I mean, you know, and, and I'm not being sort of leaning to any political side here, I'm apolitical, but, I mean, have a look at the, the US election, not this one, but the one beforehand. I mean, Trump's use of social media was second to none. Mm. And yep. it enabled him to yeah, be the president of the free world. Yeah. Yeah. It, and 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 that but that was sort of geared towards a particular type of voter who he knew he could have a conversation with or dialogue with using that particular medium. He went into that early on in that election campaign, just kind of, yeah, I'll give this a go, but no one's ever going to vote me in, right? But anyway, let's not talk about the the Trump election. This is, you know, the whole idea of decision-making, Steve, and back to The Economist at the start of the, the pandemic, and I, I can't remember which one of these, one, one of Newton's laws of motion, every action is an equal and opposite reaction. At the start of the pandemic, the collective consensus from the uh, the nation's smartest economists, i.e., those that are all part of the big banks, was that we're going to see a huge decrease in property prices. One of them I can't remember, twenty five plus percent. What happened was the exact opposite of that. Mm -hmm. uh, prices went up by the same amount. And you sit there and you scratch your head and just go, you know, is property investing like the weather? Uh, you never know what's going to happen. Whatever someone tells you, expect the opposite to happen. It's going to rain today. I oh, know it's the sunniest day and the nicest day we've ever had. So, you know, we're now being told by those same people that interest rates are going to rocket moving forward and I'll give all the justifications for it. You sit there and just go, oh, let me have a look what happened last time they had this prediction. Is that going to happen? I don't know. This is probably something a lot more they can control rather than the COVID pandemic. But I'm sitting there right now and I'm getting one piece of noise, Victor, from 
the bureaucracy, which is now translated into sort of thought bubbles of politicians saying, expect rate rises. But then I speak to people inside of property, so rate rises and a slowing market, but I speak to people inside property and they're going, we're not seeing any of that. It's it's as hot as it ever has been. Now, we're told that property is going to rise a little bit this year by these economists and drop by it's like 10, 15% uh, in 2023. Like, is this, is this going to happen? Mm. Well, you know what? We need to understand that these are predictions mm. and, and we need to know the definition of predictions. It's taking a certain set of data, putting your spin to it, in, in other words, your interpretation of it and not in some cases, not even relating to what's actually happening on the ground because the data is delayed, right? So we're still still looking at backward-facing data to project something that's going to happen in the future. And then you've got to throw in there, one of the things that came out in the last couple of days was that the cash rate in 2024 is going to be 1.15, right? Now, to put it in perspective, cash rate is 0.1%. That means significant interest rate rises, rapid interest rate rises, right? Can it happen? Yes, absolutely. But I actually don't see that on the ground. Uh, The supply and demand is still very much um, there. Certainly, when you look at it from a greater picture, the way to slow the market down, if that's the intent, is to actually restrict the lending rather than increase the interest rate. So the interest rates would only come into play when there's a runaway inflation in place, which I don't see Australia actually um, going through. Uh, and it's it's a totally different economy, totally different si- system as in the US where there are reports of 30% increase in inflation. It's a good point, sorry, Vic. It's, um, I think when we look at what's happened over the last couple of years and the predictions that have that have happened, and Phil, you mentioned you know, some of the, the economists were talking at the beginning of COVID, a 25 to 30% drop. That was, in my opinion, more of a reactive opinion from them. It was throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah, this is diabolical. But in Australia's circumstances, the beginnings of this cycle were a repercussion of what happened in 2017 via the APRA handbank. A handbank, handbank, <laughs> handbag. So we use so we kept all your secrets. Yeah. Was, it, was it Gucci or something else? Yeah, no, no, <laughs> mate. It was uh, Lowe's. It um, man bag. But that was the beginnings of this cycle. Yes, the flow of credit. Yes, the cost of money definitely had a big part of what we have today. But there are a lot of areas throughout Australia that are undersupplied mm-hmm. in terms of accommodation, and that is another big reason as to why we where we are today. So let's now play it out as we've done a couple of times on, on the podcast. So what happens if rates go up? As you say, Vic, you know, it's not really the cost of money that's going to cause a slowdown in the market. It'll be the flow of credit, which we've talked about many times. So, sorry, Victor, I'll stop your flow. I, th- I think our listeners might benefit from understanding that a little bit more because they probably think it's the same thing. Um, yeah. The cost of money, the supply of credit. Did you mind? Can you just, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but can you just extrapolate that for me? So it's the cost of money. There's, there's lots of data sets. In other words, what is the interest rate at that point in time to the consumer doesn't have an overarching or bearing effect on what the market does because there's been plenty of instances where interest rates have been 7 8 9% and the market has done its thing in terms of growth. And boom. And yeah, in fact, I remember paying, I think it was 8% and I probably double in 12 months. But that actually, that was hand in hand with 
I think it was the invention of the low doc loan mm-hmm. at the same time. So the flow of credit, so the ability to get money versus the cost of money is the real inflection point. I don't mind as an investor paying four, five, six, seven, eight percent if the numbers stack up, as long as you give me the money. So if I now come back to what I was saying before around, well, if we're undersupplied in a lot of areas now and rents are increasing, the actual gross spread between the gross yield and the cost of money might be very much similar, if not the same, to what it was two years ago before rents started increasing or even three. And yet we were happy as pigs in mud back then. Now, will that be the same for all areas? No, it won't. Will there be markets over the next, I'm going to call it 18 months to five years that suffer catastrophically? Potentially, there will be. And they're the areas that people have invested in that are really around short-term trends, but they just don't know it themselves. Will other parts of the market continue to survive and potentially thrive? Absolutely, there will. I mean, look at the GFC. The GFC was beautiful for investing, not to set the platform with the asset base, but there was plenty of opportunity during the GFC where you could buy something today and it was worth more in six months. It was just the ability and how you bought it. Whereas today is not how you buy it, it's what you buy and Mm. being in the market. So there's many, many, many different spokes in the wheel, if I guess, into what is shaping our future. But I do agree with you, Phil, coming back to the beginning of the conversation. It is that, that information and how the consumer and the collective interpret it and act upon it, Mm. negative or positive. Yeah, if you look at um, when when we started, uh, you know when COVID started, right, and the predictions were you know initially ten percent, then twenty percent, then actually thirty percent a decrease. The data sets were actually predicting that. So because everyone initially when COVID hit, everyone took a step back and said, "Oh, okay, I, this is unusual. I, I, I've not faced this before. What's going to happen?" So they sat back. So there was a lull in the market. And when you interpret that lull in the market and do a projection, in other words, draw a line to say this is where it's heading, it went down to 30%. And that's why we kept seeing this revision of these numbers where it was initially you know, below 10%, then went 10%, then 15%, then it went to 30 right? And the same thing seems to be happening now, although I don't know what data sets everyone's looking at to predict the property slowdown whether it is just the mentality of uh, or the thought process of people seeing that, you know, we sort of expect that if you had a really strong bull run, that there will be a cliff edge, or whether it is that the temporary glitch in terms of supply chains, which is leading to price rises, that they're predicting that, hang on, inflation is going to take off, uh, and therefore the markets will be forced to slow down. I think that's a really good point, because I think there's some very simplistic assessment that some people are doing that are giving that type of narrative. Mm. And you mentioned one of them, which yeah, sounds very unsophisticated, but I think it's so true, is we've just had such a great run of growth that it just has to stop. Yeah. Like it just has to stop and it needs to to contract. And, you know, that's my end result assessment. But now I'll give you some reasons why. And I'm pretending to be you know, other people here and uh, what have you, commentators. It's, you know, well, you know, interest rate is very low. We've got bottleneck supplies uh, or supply bottlenecks. Uh, We have inflation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, well, are all those opinions and all that modeling forming the opinion or is it really the subconscious that's saying, well, we've had such a great run, all things must come to an end. Mm. And, you know, here are some 
sort of limiting factors or evidence to support it. Let's not forget that a lot of the markets that have grown rapidly is a form of catch up on what it hasn't done over the last 10 years. Brisbane's a great example of that. So it's getting, it's getting back to its historical averages and then some, Mm. you know, some would argue Perth is doing the same thing. This goes all the way back to somewhat the APRA changes in 2016, 17. So to, to do to blanket approach the end result or not blanket approach, but just to give an end result saying it's going to drop by 5%, 2030 or what have you. Well, tell us why, you know, what is really forming your opinion to do so? And predictions uh, to the point that you may see are a moment in time. And those predictions around price drops happen at the start of the pandemic. And they're probably coming out in March or April of, of 2020. Now, the question I have for you guys, when did the property market become hot back in 2020? Because it was quite, it was sort of, it was bubbling away before COVID took place. But if I think back to 2020, I remember it as it was booming for most of the year and all of 21 was was booming. So from a prediction of price drops up to 30% in March or April to June being, hey, probably market's going crazy. We got it wrong. Mm. How long does a prediction last for? And we're still talking about the prediction two years on, by the way. Yeah, and when did it start? And when when did it stop? When did it stop? When did prediction stop? And when when you got to – it's okay to recalibrate. you got to go, yeah, that's what we saw three months ago, but we're seeing this now, so let's not not worry about that anymore. And to be fair, that's what they they did do. But I actually Mm. think the beginnings of the market and very strong growth was literally 12 hours after the federal election that we had Mm. before COVID. Mm. Correct. Yeah. It's the momentum started well before. Yeah, uh, and then the beginning of COVID was a hesitation. It, it wasn't a contraction; it was a hesitation. Yeah, and yeah, we've talked about this before. Whereas, yeah, Vic and I, you know, got one of the last planes out of Perth, and we did a video for our clients saying on what we thought would happen. And it's somewhere on the website. The hesitation was quickly forgotten about, or yeah, the market carried on once the rate dropped once the government stimulus started or the announcements, first homeowners grants and things like that. That was just fuel to the fire and it was an absolute 100% obvious result in what we had. Maybe not the degree of growth. We didn't you know, predict that, but we certainly saw growth once all of those little pieces came together and the governments, whether federally and, and state-based, just started shelling out grants, infrastructure yeah. projects and the like. And it happens every every time. I just don't believe the economists and the powers to be, I don't think they predicted the resilience and the ability to a- overcome and adapt of society around COVID. Yeah. That's so if you look, look at what stabilised the market there, because it, it was an upheaval, right, at the end of the day, it was an upheaval. So yeah, Victor, what stabilised it was the steady yeah. hand of Phil Tarrant, Steve Waters and Victor Kamar <laughs> on investing insights of the right property group. Yeah, the dulcet tones <laughs> are the wireless, right? <laughs> don't worry, don't panic Australia. It's going to be okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you had to take that opportunity, Phil. Okay, okay, okay. I'm just trying to help you guys with your, your PR, right? You know, that's right. it. You know, this is this is talking about the positive influencing factor of the uh, force of information, mate. If you, you say it so enough, people believe it. 
if you look at if some. you look at the, some would believe it yes some would believe it. <laughs> if you look at um, you know what really transpired right so as we as we eased into 2019 you know the, the lending start restrictions started to ease out a bit so the confidence came back in the market and started to take off and in fact you know we started to see green shoots in both Perth, Queensland uh, and, and Sydney became uh, an, an area to invest in so the numbers started working again Melbourne numbers started working again and then we had that little glitch where um, you know we got the news of the virus and government talking about lockdowns and um, restrictions started coming in in terms of mobility right and you sort of look back and say, okay, what got people back on the bandwagon? And it was the stability when they realized that, hang on, their jobs are not at risk. For those that, you know, there's there's a clear case of people did lose jobs, right? The hospitality industry and, and the travel industry. But for those that didn't lose the job and they found that actually, if anything, their job became more secure, mm. right? And then, so that was one thing. And then the ability to borrow money continued to be there. And the surety of income, household income, with the job keeper, job seeker allowances and all that came in. So people took stock and said, well, I've got nothing to lose because I've I've got surplus money. Plus, I can borrow money and uh, I can, uh, there are less investors in the market. So they started jumping in and became a roller coaster uh, effect where people started jumping in because of the ability to get money, because of the ability uh, or the forced surplus they had in the households because they could not travel. And where else do you plow the money? In, ter- in uh, times of crisis, where do people put money? Real estate. Yep, it's the flight to safety. And mm-hmm. if we if we go back just to add to that, Vic, and when did it really start or what was one of the determining factors? And it goes back to my point around the flow of credit. Remember that little instance in time when the serviceability calculations changed? Yep. Yeah, and dramatically reduced in terms of how and what you could borrow. That was the cherry on top, so to speak. Suddenly, you couldn't borrow, or before you couldn't borrow money or worthwhile money, and then suddenly you're in the market for whatever that is to you. The difference today versus decades and decades and decades ago with Australia is that we, Australia used to ride on the sheep's back. Now Australia rides on the tin roof and tile roofs of the residential real estate market, Mm. and the government know that. They know just how much is at play, and that's why potentially, you know, and it's assumption that the RBA is a little hesitant in making these forward predictions around the cash rate. The banks, banks are the banks have to report to their shareholders. They're in the business, on the other hand, though, of lending money. Yeah. So and, there's a real fine line. And that's it, you know, and, and the RBA has its hand on the throttle of Australia's sort of growth and prosperity, right, into the future. And that's the way it is, mainly around what it does with interest rates and how that affects or influences Australia's attitude, aptitude, and ability to transact in property. And that's Australia in a nutshell. There it is, Phil, the ability to influence people's decision-making and what they think they think what they think they think, and it comes back to making sure that Australians, and we come from all walks of life, Australians are consuming the most appropriate information they can to make more informed decisions. And that goes back to my point around everyone has an opinion, has an agenda. Well, there's mine. You know, that's the reason why I do this. You know, I still see 
whether or not I don't give any advice. I'm just a just a, a humble dreamer yeah. trying to get by. <laughs> but <laughs> but I, I don't necessarily give advice, but I'd like to think that as a curator of information and, and the people I bring in, it's it's reasonably sensible. I score us pretty well at Smart Property Investment over the, over that COVID period about sort of appropriate information at the appropriate time. Uh, Property is there for all Australians to capitalise on in some form or another. You might be a lifetime renter. That's great. But thankfully, you've got property investors and maintenance property that make sure that that uh, rent, uh, those rental properties remain available and, and hopefully quite affordable. Uh, but markets will dictate and determine what happens with that. The Australian yeah. government, back to your point, Steve, um, not built on the sheep's back, is built on the back of colour bond and tiles and whatever building material there is right now. The Australian government and state-based governments don't want to channel too much money into housing people. They they want the private, it's privatised, you know, property investors, that's us. Uh, and that works that. pretty well. Yeah, yep, they've said that. And in they fact, shouldn't be dabbling in it anyway. We're, we're better off doing it, you know. Well, that's it. The biggest landlord in Australia is, is New South Wales housing number one and number two. Mm. Biggest landlords in Australia. And they have been selectively selling off their assets for as long as I can remember, 20-odd years, and you've actually bought a few, Phil. Yeah. And and the reason for that is because it's not viable for them to do so, and the model that they had does not work. Privatise so it. They've privatised they so many well, things, telecommunications. They're, tro- yeah. they're, they're <laughs> trying to. I think you'd be a very game person to take on that sort of elephant personally. Yeah, there's got to be parts um, of it. There's, pa- there's parts that the NSW government needs to be responsible for, but- well, they kind of are to the privateer mm. landlord. Yeah, like they, yeah, you know, in a, and they get paid on the way through. Way. They're getting Correct. stamp duty. Correct. Getting land tax. Yeah. You know, it's all tax receipts, um, mm. uh, which allows them to continue to reinvest and park that money in in positive stuff like um, you know, disability schemes and all these type of things, right? And um, affordable housing on the back affordable end housing on the back Correct. end. But the big thing that I also believe on a state basis around, let's talk about coming to information and and predictions. You know, whilst there is a lot of noise, you know, there's the rates, there's the RBA, there's inflation, there's a federal election. What has slipped by the wayside somewhat, especially for New South Wales, is the stamp duty reform. Stamp mm-hmm. duty reforms. Like, is that a deliberate thing or is it going to be reassessed or is it still, you know, in its diligence stage and and what have you, especially as if the market cools, will they still have the same approach? to stamp duty because that will also influence potential investors and homeowners yeah. on what to do. So there is there is a thousand spinning plates and balls up in the air for the policymakers at the moment. And I would imagine that there's some pretty, I don't know, delicate conversations having between government and the banks. Mate, Stephen, there's a seat waiting for you there at Macquarie Street uh, <laughs> uh, and yourself, Isles, mate. Um, hopefully they can... Get smarter you know and make think some of, good policy I can think decision. of nothing worse. I can see you sitting there. Do it. Yeah. No, no, I don't have the attention span. <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> my, not, especially not in your electorate. We'll just it's, be armchair critics, mate. It's the best way for us. Well, to I be. think or, that's or, the safest or, way or, to be. Uh, armchair contributors. I wouldn't say we're critics. Um, but uh, anyway, all this will play out. So the one takeaway, Victor, how do you do an information detox? Uh, how do you actually? challenge or get rid of the, some of those assumptions that you may have embraced by misinformation you may have consumed. Let's talk about the property info detox. Yeah, absolutely. And the first thing that you need to uh, remember is that you should be investing within your means, stick to a plan, stick to an outcome. That'll help you determine what you do in 
any market, right? And, and how it dovetails into your already existing portfolio if you're just starting the portfolio and understanding that market is always just between your years. Nowhere else, just between your years. And if you detract from the simplicity of investing, you will get financially hurt. There you go. And that's the last thing we want is people being financially hurt. We're, uh, we're all invested in all of us Aussies doing better over time. If we can get that, we're doing well. How's it working with you guys at the moment? I know you've always got a lineup if you want to have a chat with you. Can people sort of find any of your time in your calendar, Victor, to talk property? Uh, well, we do have a process. So obviously, if um, you wanted uh, to seek our help uh, in uh, guiding you through the investment journey, reach out to us via socials or through our website, uh, writepropertygroup.com.au. There is a uh, form there that you need to fill out. And um, you will initially speak with Melissa so that uh, she can uh, ensure that you get the best of our time. So she prepares you for our conversation. That sets up a time uh, for either myself or Steve uh, to have a chat. And we will tell you warts and all, whether you should be investing or not and whether we can help or not, right? So it's not that if you inquire, you are going to become a client. There are many people that we do, do turn away. To do things first, implement, get the foundations right. Or for some, we say, you know, you've got the hallmarks of a really good property portfolio that you need to do X, Y, and Z to, to get to your goal. That's all you need to do. Absolutely. And at the bare minimum, if we can send you away, so to speak, with a with a plan of action, mm. you know, if you're not quite ready to purchase, yeah, whether it be you need to save more, increase income, get rid of bad debt, whatever it may be, the conversations are, you know, I'd like to believe, fully interactive, but also quite valuable. That uh, sounds very good. Uh, Rightpropertygroup.com.au. Gents, thanks for your time today. Always enjoy the chat. Um, be interesting to see where this market goes over this uh, coming year. But uh, anyway, no doubt we can rate that uh, on Investing Insights or Right Property Group. We'll see you all again next time. Until then, bye-bye. The information featured in this podcast is general in nature, does not take into consideration your financial situation or individual needs and should not be relied upon. Before making any investment, insurance, tax, property or financial planning decision, you should consult a licensed professional who can advise whether your decision is appropriate for you.